0: This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit FilmGeekRadio.com for more great
1: shows. Hey, dear listeners, this is Andrew. Welcome to a special bonus edition of Cinema Fix. And uh, also, let's get real. I I think I'm going to throw it in the feed for that show as well. Uh, This is a little extra bit of good conversation that I wanted to be sure to throw your way. You may remember on the last episode of Cinema Fix, author Gareth Higgins came on the show to discuss Dallas Buyers Club. That was a uh, really, really good discussion. But after we recorded that episode, we had a casual interview with him about movies and criticism and uh, his new book, Cinematic States. And I'm very excited to be able to share that with you now. Uh, Cinematic States is the second book Gareth has written about movies. His first book, How Movies Helped Save My Soul, was a pretty major influence on me. Uh, I read it when I was around 15 or 16 years old. And I was at a point in my life when I was just starting to really think about movies critically and, and to write about them and to start to really think about studying film and, and why film is so important. And that book just really helped Crystallize a lot of those things for me. So I will always owe him a debt of gratitude for that. Uh, Later on in life, when I went to college in North Carolina, I realized that Gareth actually moved to North Carolina around the same time that I did. And eventually we managed to get in touch. And and now I'm very privileged to call him uh, a friend. You know, it's not often that you get to know someone in person who was a big influence on you uh, growing up. So I'm very lucky and, and very grateful that that has happened. Now, uh, Gareth is also the co-host of The Film Talk, which is the best film podcast I'm not involved in. Uh, You can find that on iTunes and at thefilmtalk.com. And the cool thing about Gareth is that he takes a very personal and a very ethical approach to film. He's very interested in violence and how movies shape our views of violence. And I've always been drawn to how he manages to look at movies on an extremely personal level, while also connecting them to larger cultural concerns. He's got a really great outlook on film and criticism. Uh, In fact, he even gave a lecture a year or two ago at, at a conference about the role of criticism, that's uh, it's really qu- quite incredible. I-, I think what I'll do is I'll probably go ahead and embed a link to that in the show notes for this episode so you can all hear it. Uh, it- it's pretty fantastic. But anyways, in Gareth's in new book, Cinematic States, he goes through all 50 states in the U.S., and he examines a few films that are set in each state. And he uses that as a way to explore different aspects of American culture and American myths, both uh, the good things and, and the bad things. Um, it's also worth pointing out that Gareth is originally from Northern Ireland, so although he lives here now, he's able to bring with him an outsider's perspective, and that tends to lead him to some pretty interesting insights. But uh, I'm going to stop rambling right now. You can purchase Cinematic States at cinematicstates.com or through retailers like Amazon. Uh, You should definitely do so. I I really enjoyed the book. Uh, Without further ado, here's our extra bonus conversation with author, activist, speaker, and film critic extraordinaire, Gareth Higgins. Hi, everybody. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm here with Monica Castillo. We are talking today with Gareth Higgins about his new book, Cinematic States, Stories We Tell, The American Dream Life, and How to Understand Everything. Congratulations on the book, Gareth. Hey, thanks, Andrew. This book has been, I feel like, in development for years. I remember I was doing a little bit of uh, research for a, a project a year or two ago. I was researching... You and I've discovered a, a a lecture that you gave. I want to say it was at the Greenbelt Festival. Is that where? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was maybe the, the lecture was titled "Cinematic States." <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> I like to. I'm
0: like George Lucas in so many respects. <laughs> I like to leave him waiting. You know.
1: Yeah, I get the impression that this book has kind of just been sitting with you for years now. Is that the case?
0: Yeah, the idea, well, I suppose that we could chart the exact moment
1: when, I, when the idea hit
0: me, and that was um, around the time that Into the Wild was out, you know, the Sean Penn film with, with Emil Hirsch about um, uh, Christopher McCandless uh, making his way across the country. And I saw it at the Arclight Theatre in L.A. and was flying to New Zealand that night, and I really almost had the idea in a dream on the plane. Uh, It just hit me that what I wanted to do was to make a film uh, in which I would visit each state. I would screen an iconic movie from that state to an interesting group of people and have a conversation about how the film impacted them. And so for the better part of a year or two, trying to get it made as a film and that didn't come together. It may in the future actually have two ideas uh, for a film around this, one being a a video essay and the other being the original film idea, which we might crowdsource uh, at at some point. So what I decided to do was to write a book. And I wrote a book about, uh, initially I thought it was a book about cinema. It turned out to be a book about America, but how I understand the US from the perspective of an outsider who has totally changed my life to, to come and live here, And given that my background in how I understood America before was shaped entirely by the Hollywood movies of my childhood, The Goonies, Back to the Future, Superman, E.T. And then, of course, branching out, broadening, taste, learning more about cinema history, um, discovering that there's so much more to the U.S., not just than outsiders think, but I suspect than Americans think. And the first of those huge differences, surprising differences, is that the U.S. really isn't one nation. The U.S. is at least 50 nations. The difference between the states is marked in light and in shadow. And one of the things that I discovered that brought me most joy in writing this book was that I think I could pretty much live in any state and be happy uh, because every state has got two stories going on, the light story and the shadow story. I think if I remember rightly, Carl Rove and Allen Ginsberg were born in the same state. You know, North Carolina has a Tea Party-influenced governor and the city of Asheville. Right. Texas has its reputation for an almost rabid use of the death penalty. And it has Austin at mm-hmm. the same time, where, where our old friend Matthew McConaughey plays his bongos. <laughs> so that's, that's where the book came from. And that's really what it is. It's a book exploring the United States through one movie from each state.
1: It's one of those books that, when you hear the description, you you kind of think, "How has nobody done this before?" I know.
0: <laughs> I ask myself that too. I mean, I'd I still, you know, I, I live with a, with a moderate degree of fear that one day I'm going to go into a, a Barnes and Noble, uh, if any of them still exist, and find an entire section of books about one movie per state that, was, that were, like, they were, like, hidden. There was, like, a secret door. But as far as I know, no one else has done it.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't believe that when I heard that that was the structure that you were taking with the mm. book. I was, I'm was i impressed, Garrett, that you got there first. So, congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean... It was- you know, it, 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 in, in some sense, it, like,
0: it was very influenced by the experience of watching Into the Wild. And I think also Sufjan Stevens, um, what has turned out to be quixotic and may, maybe actually was a bit of a prank, his uh, plan to record one album about every state. Mm-hmm. You know, my sense is good, I- good ideas are, are 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 there for the taking. I think that, you know, this book would be a very different book, obviously, had it been written by anybody else. It's not. It's not a kind of a quote-unquote objective film analysis book. I would challenge the notion of objectivity anyway. But this is not an encyclopedia, and it's not a work that's going to be published in a highbrow journal. And more is, I think more is the pity to the highbrow journals because there's an a, kind of an elevated. Discourse about cinema that I'm not even sure the participants in that discourse understand. (laughs) And I know I I use the word discourse twice in a sentence about people being elitist. So, (laughs) 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 you know, I am both. I am also a divided state of light and shadow.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. What's remarkable to me about your writing, Gareth, and your overall approach to criticism is precisely that you don't seem very concerned about having the quote-unquote right opinions or or knowing the right things. I get the sense that you just tend to approach cinema as a very personal experience, and, and, and you're very focused on what your perspective can bring to the conversation, and how together, if we each, you know, discuss... Our own bring our own unique perspectives to the table. How that can help us to be better?
0: Yeah, I'm not interested in what's right uh, according to the canon or to the. Uh, I'm thinking of the original Clash of the Titans, and if if you need the if you need to be reminded which one the original is, it's the good one. <laughs> and the gods with I believe Lawrence Lawrence
1: Olivier, yeah uh,
0: is playing Zeus in that, and you got you got the gods hanging out in this what looks like a celestial bathhouse. And there's a sort of a film-critical fraternity, and it is a fraternity since Pauline Kael died. It's a boys' club, and it's kind of a close-ranked... There's sort of inverse caricatures of the Peter O'Toole character in Ratatouille, Mm -hmm. uh, for whom being right matters more than a good conversation. Mm -hmm. And being right sometimes seems to matter more than being humane. So, I love Ohazar Balthazar, and I love The Goonies, (laughs) (laughs) and I love The Exorcist, and Eternity in a Day, Theo Angelopoulos' film, and Adam McGuyan's Exotica, and Alexander Payne's Election. And that's just four films beginning with the letter E, and they're all different genres, and they're considered variations of high and low art by the gods in the Celestial Bathhouse. I'm much more interested in what's good and humane than in what the statuary says you're supposed to like, you're supposed to not like. Mm Now, having said that, it doesn't mean I don't think that there's room for wisdom and interpretation and a body of knowledge and a body of conversation. So I am influenced and have had doors opened to me by the great critics who've educated and illuminated and invited me in uh, to see films that I wouldn't otherwise see partly because the market dictates that these films don't uh, get seen or shown very often. Uh, and partly because you need, you know, you, you need an invitation to move beyond the diet you've been raised on. Now, I was lucky in that uh, I had parents who encouraged me to watch good cinema of a kind that children normally wouldn't be seeing. I remember at 13 years old, being allowed to stay up late to watch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when it was screened on on British television, I believe, for the first time. And I believe what was happening was my mother, who's a theatre teacher, was weighing up, okay, he's supposed to go to bed early because he's only 13, but One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is on and I'd like him to see it. And One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is kind of violent and shocking, but it's a profoundly moral story. He should see this. And we watched it together and I wouldn't have seen it at that age if I hadn't been invited into that. So I'm not abandoning any notion uh, that there's a body of knowledge or that there's, a, there, there's, there's value to uh, critical conversation. What I am saying is that the nature and tone and the substance of the conversation Should change. Mm -hmm. I'm very attracted to the um, conflict resolution theorist Marshall Rosenberg's idea of nonviolent communication, and I think that if we applied this to film criticism, we'd have a richer conversation and we'd waste a lot less time. It's really this. I'm going to give you a a real oversimplification of what Rosenberg's idea of nonviolent communication is, and that is, our culture teaches us that the purpose of conversation is to decide whether or not you agree with the person you're talking with. And at worst, the purpose of conversation is to defeat your conversation partner when you think they're wrong. Uh, Rosenberg would say that actually the deeper purpose of conversation is to listen for the purpose of understanding the person that you're listening to. And that even if you disagree with each other profoundly, if you're just listening for the purpose of understanding, if all that actually happens in your conversation is that one of you understands the other better, that is a far more profound, far more humane, far more substantive interaction than if we just say, I like that, I didn't like that, therefore, I like you less. Mm. That's the philosoph- That's you know, in my celestial pathos, that's what my Zeus is saying. Mm-hmm. That's why people often criticize me for being too forgiving of movies. My first response to that would be, goodness gracious, what a horrible thing to be accused of. <laughs> <laughs> to be too forgiving, I'll just, I'll just go and uh, hide in the darkened room for the rest of my life. Uh, secondly, I, I don't think that's the case. I actually think that it's better for all of us if we begin from the perspective that it's hard to make a film that it takes, you know, uh, upwards of a thousand people sometimes to make a a big film. Many of them are doing their best. And let's evaluate the thing on the terms that it was intended and in the cultural context that it arises. So for me, it's just to go back to the idea of high and and, and low art, it's just stupid to compare Star Wars with Andre Rublev. They're not, the same category of thing. Mm -hmm. So if I were to say, you know, frankly, the special effects in Star Wars are better than the special effects in Andrei Rublev. Okay? Right. The investigation of the existential meaning of pretending you know how to do something when you actually don't and then discovering that you do know how to do it is better in Andrei Rublev than it is in Star Wars. And both of them are better than Transformers.
1: There we go. (laughs) I was going to say, okay, well, what happens when, like, a film is so big and so massive, but it's so offensive. And it's, do we still hold it to the same mercy, I guess?
0: Well, the you, you know, mercy can also include patting a puppy on the head and saying, sit there and don't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that's probably what I'd do if I met Michael Bay.
1: Oh, okay, good.
0: <laughs> In the On the Film Talk podcast that, that I do with, with Jetla, we often talk about there are people like Michael Bay and uh, I'm trying to think of the other guy um, who...
1: Brookheimer?
0: Uh, no, I can't, I can't remember. There was a film that we were dis- we, that he and I discussed earlier on in the year that was really, really poorly directed and brilliantly physically designed. And the director was the one who designed it. And our view was like, this guy should not be a director. He should be a, an art director or a production designer. He's fantastic. I mean, that's uh, you know, Mike, Michael Bay should be a production designer. He's not a storyteller. He's not a good storyteller. Uh he's not he, he's he's not a humane storyteller. So that's what I mean about the mercy part. There's some people who are just doing jobs that they're not made for. And I think we've all experienced that in life. It doesn't mean that I don't ever say this film is reprehensible. When I can say this film is reprehensible and I know a lot of people worked very hard to make it. So I just think the kind of knee-jerky and the thumb, you know, God bless Roger Ebert, but the thumbs up, thumbs down, and the star rating, which he was critical of too. Which I mean, it's kind of ironic that Roger Ebert was so critical of the star rating when the when the th- the thumb thumb up and thumb down really reduces to having you only have two stars.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: that's no way to interpret and evaluate art, and it's not an invitation to the part of us that wants to expand our horizons, that wants to see things that we wouldn't otherwise see. Because I think we, we have this tendency, you know, we predict probability, human beings predict probability on the basis of how easily we can recall examples. And one of the reasons people think that the world is becoming more violent is because the information sources that we're all addicted to Are themselves economically and philosophically addicted to the idea that violence is what sells. So our minds are all full of of examples of murder and because human beings predict probability based on how easily we can recall examples, we all think that there's more murder in the world. There's actually less murder in the world than there's ever been at any point in recorded history. So until I was 17, I had never enjoyed eating lasagna. I didn't have any examples of enjoying eating lasagna. So if you asked me if I liked lasagna, I always said, no, I don't like lasagna. And then one day somebody said to me, have you ever tasted lasagna? And I said, no, I don't like lasagna. (laughs) And they pointed out to me that I had never actually eaten it. And I ate it and it became one of my favorite foods. And so I I think of another thing, you know, about the lovely Roger Ebert. He, He tells a story, it would have been 1972, I think. He got a phone call at his at his desk at at the newspaper he's working for from a woman asking him to recommend a movie for her and her husband to go and see that night. He asked her what part of Chicago she lived in, and and she told him, so he knew what movie theater was closest to her. And he said, "Well, uh, Cries and Whispers is is playing," and uh, she said, "What's Cries and Whispers?" And he said, "I think it's the greatest film released this year in American cinema in American theaters." And she said, well, it doesn't sound like anything we'd want to see. (laughs) (laughs) So the appetite grows by eating, but the appetite needs to be invited to consider a different palate. And I'm so grateful to people like Roger Ebert. I'm so grateful to the mainstream serious critics who said to me, if you like Field of Dreams, you might like Tarkovsky's The Sacrifice, <laughs> mm-hmm. which has similar thematic concerns handled very, very differently. I don't know how we got onto this question. It's <laughs> You're asking me what my, my theory of everything is. Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> yeah. basically be, be nice and watch a lot of movies.
1: I mean, if, if getting back to cinematic states, yeah. it is very different from a lot of film books in the sense that a lot of the movies you talk about are fairly... They're not highbrow. They're pretty mainstream. A lot of them are very new sure. in in certain respects. I mean, you talk about Purple Rain. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So so, so, so when you were writing the book, how did you approach selecting the films? Were you concerned at all like, oh, I need to be a little bit more highbrow certain times and a little more quote-unquote lowbrow or was it just, I'm just going to write about what I feel like writing about?
0: You know, it's a mix of all of that. There was there was a desire not to choose the obvious ones too often. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why, for instance, in the Georgia chapter, I talk about Gone with the Wind, but I also talk about Deliverance and Wise Blood. Um, Kansas kind of demands that it be The Wizard of Oz and only The Wizard of Oz. Uh, New York has five films because... How can you only have one film right. in New York? And one of those is King Kong, the original. Uh, one of them is the amazing Wayne Wine, Paul Auster film, Smoke, which I, I realized recently it might be my favorite film. Have you seen that film? I
1: don't think I have. Not.
0: It's set in a Brooklyn cigar store. Harvey, Ke- Get this for a cast. Harvey Keitel plays the cigar store uh, owner. William Hurt is the grieving Novelist who lives down the street. Jared Harris, from, who later went on to be in Mad Men, is Richard Harris's son, plays the like the, the janitor in the cigar store. Stockard Channing is in it. Ashley Judd is in it. Forrest Whitaker is in it. It's a film of four vignettes, tonally perfect. It's a film that I can put on in the background when I need to feel comforted. It's a film that I can sit down and be totally compelled by. And it's as much New York as the Empire State Building uh, with a monkey on the top is. So I didn't want to do the obvious. There are some states that have very, very few films that come from that state. Now, the, the rule was the film had to be at least partially set in the state, because obviously some, some states the, the movie wasn't made there. Most movies are made uh, in L.A., in New York, Wilmington, North Carolina, or in the uh, in Nashville, Those are the, the four biggest uh, movie-producing cities in, in the country at the moment, I believe. So, like, Delaware has – there's only one film that I could find that was even partially set in Delaware, and it's a film that doesn't even mention Delaware. Do you remember what it is, Andrew? I don't remember. it. It's Fight Club.
1: Wow. <laughs>
0: which is set in Wilmington, Delaware, which has a paper street. Until Sioux Falls, South Dakota came up with a a more agreeable tax regime, was the place where most credit card companies in the United States headquartered themselves, uh, which is, of course, an an important plot point within Fight Club. So, the degree to which Fight Club actually says something about Delaware is arguable the same with any of the other films. The degree to which Purple Rain says something about Minnesota Mm -hmm. is also arguable. That wasn't the point. The point was for me to use these as a way into thinking about the state. And I did do some external research into each state. Um, And I think it becomes more like a kind of a a, a tapestry or a stew, like I say, far more than an encyclopedia. And there's nothing wrong with using low art as a way to understand a people.
1: Oh, no, definitely not. That's probably the best way to get to understand a people, actually. Uh, well well, the other thing that's interesting about cinematic states is that you also structure it similarly to how you structured uh, how movies helped save my soul in that each chapter does seem to have have a theme that it's working on.
0: This is the first interview I've done with someone who's actually shown evidence that they've read my books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm touched. <laughs> well, you know the theme the theme arose I, the, the themes weren't imposed. It's what, what came to me as I was watching the film.
1: Right. And, and sometimes it, it, it gets a little interesting. Like you, uh, you have Napoleon Dynamite in the chapter about sex, which I uh-huh. would never have thought to be related <laughs> to sex much in any way. Really?
0: <laughs> so you don't think that what's happening in Napoleon Dynamite includes the dynamics of sexuality among high school students? Oh,
1: sure. But, but if you were to ask me, hey, name a great movie about sex, I wouldn't say Napoleon <laughs> Dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: in fairness to the author of Cinematic States, that chapter is also about my own private Idaho, mm-hmm. which is a film about sex, if if ever there was one. Right.
1: <laughs> I did think it was interesting how you 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 were taking the structure of re- re- I'm going to go through all the states, but then you were also trying to tie within each chapter the th- find a thematic through line to tie them all together. <laughs> Uh, there's a part of me that thinks, wow, that must have been really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm impressed that you were able to pull it off.
0: Well, that's, you know, it's only difficult if you take it seriously. Mm. Really what I mean by that is only difficult if you take yourself too seriously. Mm-hmm. I wanted to take America seriously and take the movie seriously. And I take life seriously, but I try not to take myself too seriously.
1: Right. Well, well just to move on a little bit away from the book and, and back to just your overall view of, of criticism. I, I know you've said several times on the podcast and, and in lectures you've given that the role of art and criticism should be to make us more human. And, and that's something that's always stood out to me and that I will constantly find myself thinking about mm. whenever I, I, I see a film. I, I know your perspective was shaped so much by childhood and growing up in, in, in Northern Ireland, you know, I'm not surprised at all that you would be drawn to Rosenberg's mm. theories about a conversation just because your, your primary goal and everything you do seems to be how can we achieve peace, mm-hmm. which I think is, is not a perspective most people take either in criticism or in life in general.
0: Well, actually, I, I would put it as, I would say, how can we reduce violence? Right, because I think peace is very much misunderstood, and conflict is necessary. Conflict is inevitable when human beings come together. My question is about how can we reduce the violence that seems inherent, but I don't think is I don't think is inevitable in the conflict that is inevitable. But sorry, I I I, I interrupted.
1: No, no, no. I I I think that that's that's what makes your perspective so valuable and so unique is that, unlike most critics that seem very, very focused on, as we talked about earlier, having the right opinion or knowing the most about cinema, you seem to be looking at film through a very philosophical and and moral lens, Mm -hmm. which I think is too often left out of the conversation.
0: Yeah, well, I think that everyone's looking at everything through a philosophical and moral lens but it's not fashionable to admit to that mm-hmm. i mean it's just self seems self-evident to me everyone's bringing a posture to film and that's one of the reasons why we you know we self-select critics who we like because the perspective they bring resonates with us or because we know that we don't like the kinds of films that this particular critic likes uh, we just like the way they write about them
1: Mm-hmm. well I, I wish more people chose critics <laughs> that way sure I, I, I feel sure. like a lot of people they just read the critics that tend to agree with them sure
0: mm-hmm. and there's there's a you know the an, an, another thing that Jed often says is that that you know the IMDB top 250 list is It's a little bit like sports team rankings. Yeah. That, you know, people are outraged if, I don't know, when the Dark Knight Rises comes out, that it's not automatically at number one. As if this, but this, that actually, it's foolish and, and inhumane to denounce those folk whose perspective on the world is like that for a couple of reasons. One is that's all about the search for belonging. People want to feel like they belong. They want to feel like other people are like them. And one way that, that they mark that is if everybody else likes the same film that they like, then they feel a little less alone in the world. And that is a noble thing to be looking for. There are, of course, deeper ways of doing that. I think one of the deeper ways of doing that is to say, you, know, you tell me your favorite film and why you liked it. And all I want to know is more especially if I haven't seen that film. I want to know more about why you like this thing. I'm not interested in proving you wrong. <laughs> I'm not interested in showing you how you didn't understand this film. Why would I do that? Why would I tell someone this thing that's bringing you joy and love and light is actually objectively a bad work of art? No. What I would do is the, if you like that, then try this. Or, hey, those are the 10 reasons you love it. Here's a couple of reasons I love it that you haven't mentioned. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I really do think this is a profoundly revolutionary thought. There, there will be, I mean, I have some faith and trust that humanity is evolving in a positive direction. We will eventually treat nonviolent communication as second nature. I think there's real. If, if you want evidence for that, read Stephen Pinker's book, *The Better Angels of Our Nature*, how violence has declined, which shows that there are things that we, uh, that that cruelty and barbarity has been second nature at different uh, in the past for human beings in ways that today we wouldn't even conceive of thinking of doing to somebody. Never mind, we would affirm it or turn a blind eye if it happens. So we do. We are evolving. And we will eventually get to the point where we can. I can look at an artwork, you can look at an artwork, and we have a beautiful conversation about it, in which we we radically disagree with each other, and we recognise the value is in the conversation itself. So I, you know, I came out of Twelve Years a Slave three weeks ago, and I overheard someone say in what I thought was quite a sneering way, uh, "It's twenty minutes too long." And then he said, "I mean, it is important." But will the people who need to see it actually go and see it? Uh, this was a middle-aged white man. And I don't know this man. So obviously I can't speak to the depth and the profundity of his, of his work to make amends for the history of uh, slavery in the United States. But my gut feeling was that he's probably not at the forefront of that movement. And for him, for him to say, will the people who need to see it see it, assuming that he's not one of those people, mm-hmm. assuming that I'm not one of those people, that's a con- i'd like to have a non-violent com- conversation
1: with them <laughs> about that um, oh uh well, you you brought up um that whole idea of uh, asking people what their favorite films are yes. it seems like every time i speak with you gareth you have I got a different film one. well i you know there're categories there's best and
0: favorite and those are different categories mm. i think the i think the best film i've ever seen is is tarkovsky's Rub rublov and um you know my favorite vacillates
1: right i, I remember Back when you first published uh, how movies help save my soul, it was Wings of Desire, yeah. and yeah. maybe Magnolia and Field yeah. Dreams were some runner-ups.
0: Yeah, there's still, you know, and ask me on a different day. That ask me the next time I see Magnolia. Mm-hmm. the answer will probably be Magnolia. But uh, although, of course, you know, your perspective on your favorite films changes as you get older, as you have different experiences. And right. I, I think Magnolia came along for me at the right time. I think Wings of Desire is more universal. Although if I was to choose a Vendors film, it would be Paris, Texas. Mm. And, you know, Smoke is the film that feels most like my inner life or the inner life that I want to have when I'm at my best. Mm-hmm. You know, there is this romantic ideal of, first of all, the romantic ideal of Brooklyn when it was quieter and Brooklyn when it was less hipstery mm-hmm. and of being William William Hurt with a big shaggy beard, writing at a typewriter in a, in a large open-plan apartment smoking shimmel cigars... And that's ironic because, you know, I don't have a big shaggy beard, I don't write with a typewriter, I don't live in Brooklyn, I don't smoke anymore. <laughs> but this, but the, the inner life, the inner landscape of that film feels like like I'm at home in it.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think it's great that, that your favorite film is constantly changing because that means that you're not, you're not stuck. You know, you're sure. open to having new insights and new Feelings and perspectives.
0: True. And, 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 you know, I probably have a list of 20 favorite films that, that remains fairly constant. You know, I'm not Ray Fine's character in The English Patient, who you may remember is an intellectual aristocrat mm-hmm. and yet only has one book. <laughs> um, a copy of, of, uh, of Herodotus which he carries around with him and uh, it, it couldn't have been you know, he might as well have had a sticker on the front saying prop that makes me look adorable
1: <laughs> well, 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 speaking of favorite films and, and best films, uh, before we, we end, uh, what are some of your favorite films or, or some of the best films that you've seen so far this year?
0: Oh, this year? Wow. Um and will will you ask me what the best film in the book is as well?
1: Oh sure. What's the best film in the book? Well, the best the best film in the book you, you know people will have to buy it to find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: This is oh, that is again you're back to categories. It's probably Chinatown, although, you know, the 3% of me that doesn't want to say that mm-hmm. is to do with Chinatown is not a very humane piece of storytelling. Right. It feels truthful, but it's not very humane. The film that I think is most representative of America, and in the next book that I'm starting to work on, which is going to be crowdsourced, which applies this same idea to the whole world, one film from every country, every nation in the world that's ever produced a film, Mm. with, uh, with local critics writing about the film that they feel other people need to see, If I were the U.S. American critic writing for that book, which I'm obviously not going to be, I would have a strong preference toward Robert Altman's Nashville as being the quintessential U.S. American film because it has everything in it. And the reason it it nudges out Chinatown is because it has humanity in it without hiding from the darkness This book, Cinematic States, however, is you're pretty close to guarantee. It's the only book that has listed The Prince of Tides as being an emotionally truthful film. (laughs) And that's in the context of saying, you know, sometimes films can be bad on one level or on the kind of accepted mainstream critical level. I think The Prince of Tides is one of those films. And it's also emotionally truthful. Mm. We don't experience emotions as complete entities and we don't experience a given day as a coherent thing i mean if you're if you're like me or i suspect every other human on the planet you're capable of having rage and delight in the same hour you're capable of being grateful and angry at the same time and so a film is capable of having nick nolte expressing broken masculinity, wounded masculinity, with a performance of such quality that at one level it it belongs in a Bergman film, on the other level his accent is so bad. It's like Woody Woodpecker would have made a more subtle actor in the role. (laughs) And the the, e- the egoism of the film and the kind of the, you know, I really think there's an issue to do with Barbara Streisand feeling like she needs to be everything in the film. Mm-hmm. Those are all problems, but it's a film that moves me deeply. So, yeah, I'm going to say the best film in the book is Nashville, Chinatown's The Runner-Up, and they're all films I'd revisit, mm-hmm. even the bad ones, because I'm watching them through a different lens.
1: There's a lot of great stuff in the book, you write about Purple Rain, you write about Deliverance, you write about The Mist. I'm so glad you wrote about The Mist. Mm.
0: Great undervalued and unseen
1: film. Yes, definitely. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff in the book. What movies from this year should people be sure to check out? So... I, I know when I caught up with you at Full Frame, yeah. you, uh, you were uh, as, as happy about Spring Breakers as yeah. I yeah, I thought
0: Spring Breakers was the first really good film I saw this year. My favourite film this year is Sarah Polley's Documentary Stories We Tell. Mm.
1: Nice.
0: Which is about this whole thing of how do we make meaning out of the out of the narratives we learn and relearn and revise. And it has the most breathtaking, thrilling moment that I've seen in a film all year. When Sarah Polly's father says two or three sentences about... An event that happened in his past that the audience I saw it with audibly gasped uh, when he says these words. And uh, it's more thrilling than anything I saw in Gravity or Captain Phillips, both of which deserve uh, your attention to. Um, I loved Fruitvale Station. I thought Short Term 12 was a, was a really good piece of work. Gatsby was fantastic. Like, I mean, I think, ba- you know, Baz Luhrmann is a guy who people don't like because, again, he's a big canvas guy. He seems to like himself a lot. But there hasn't been a Baz Luhrmann film that I didn't love. Uh, Mud is my favorite piece of fiction this year, and the most underrated, and perhaps the most politically important film, that was released in, in uh, 2013. I think is The Lone Ranger.
1: Right. I remember I heard your your episode of the film talk about The Lone Ranger. And, Kareth, I, I love you, and I think you brought up <laughs> great points. <laughs> but, and I, I, I think that the film is trying to do what you say it did. I think <laughs> I just disagree that it managed to do then.
0: So, you know, if you were a parent and your little four-year-old kid came home with a painting of a house and it looked like a typical four-year-old's painting of a house, would you say, that's a great painting – or, I see what you're trying to do here, but that's not what houses look like.
1: <laughs> Did you just say that Gore Verbinski is a four-year-old? I was, yeah, that's just what I was thinking. <laughs> He's a little older, man. <laughs> so the, re- the reason I think that The, the, the Lone
0: Ranger is so, is so good and so valuable is it takes an element of the history of the U.S. that is still almost completely denied, and it paints it in the form of a blockbuster action entertainment. I know there's questions about the kind of, the nuances of the the ethnicity portrayal uh, of Tonto that I can't speak to. All I know is that it moved me deeply to watch this character unfold who represents the genocide of 20 million people and that the position this film takes on patriotism is astonishing especially when you think about it being a Disney film there's a scene where You know, patriotic music is being played basically in the context of genocide. Mm -hmm. And it's not the Nazis and it's not Stalin and it's not Pol Pot. It's us. And this film ends. It has one of those interesting end credit sequences where the screen fades to black. You get a bit of credits and then it opens again and you get a whole new scene. Uh, But instead of Samuel L. Jackson showing up to introduce a new character, um, what you get is Tonto as an elderly, frail man walking out into the place where his now eradicated people lived to sit down and die? You don't get that a lot in Disney films. Yeah. So I think it's doing more than trying. I think it's it's succeeding. And it has Buster Keaton-esque humor and Indiana Jones-esque action. So it's, it's as good a version of that category of film as you could get to to I may appear contrarian when I say it's I, I really do think it's it's the best large scale blockbuster film of its kind since Raiders of the Lost Ark, unless you count John Carter.
1: I will agree with you that John Carter is a decent film.
0: <laughs> it's not about agreement or disagreement.
1: I I agree yeah you're right. <laughs>
0: no no it's not about
1: agreement or disagreement. <laughs>
0: It's all a trick, man. <laughs> it's a trap.
1: <laughs> it's always great talking with you, Gareth. Sure, you too. Thank you for the conversation
0: and thank you for paying attention to the to the work and, and uh, to my writing. I, I appreciate being able to be in a, in a dialogue with, with folk about it.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, ever, ever since uh, I read your first book, I've been waiting for the second one and now I'm already waiting for the third. So <laughs> right, well, thank <laughs> hurry you. up. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's it's always wonderful speaking with you. I wish that I had your compassion, <laughs> <laughs> and I wish that I would. It was as as easy for me as it is for you to put aside everything about agreeing and disagreeing. And Monica can attest <laughs> that uh, that sometimes our discussions on the show will get pretty heated. <laughs> Part of it's because I, like you, I enjoy the conversation and I, en- I enjoy to a certain extent the disagreement and would like to explore that. But you're right. Sometimes it is easy to fall back on just wanting to be right. And I wish that I had your ability to uh, banish that thought from my mind. Do you have any advice for, for people like me? Who want to become more compassionate? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, who need to forget that it's not always just about being right.
0: I'm not the Dalai Lama, and I think he's probably better at answering that question than than, than I am. And First of all, I think we, we tend to evaluate qualities within ourselves that we feel we are lacking precisely because we are actually embodying those qualities. So the question of compassion... The question of wanting to be more compassionate, my feeling about that is a person would only ask, how can I become more compassionate if they're already more compassionate than they think they are? And that probably is what the Dalai Lama would say, and I'm happy to take it too, because I, I think it's true. It's only people who are so broken and removed from compassion that don't raise that question.
1: Well, Gareth, how can I be more encouraging? <laughs> <As you are>. <laughs> oh <laughs> I think you're
0: doing just fine. I think you're doing just fine.
1: <laughs> oh, well it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. And I, I, I hope I, I know you're super busy. Who knows, maybe in a few months we can get together again and, 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 and talk movies. It's it's always a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much.
1: All right, that was Gareth Higgins discussing life, movies, criticism, and his new book, *Cinematic States*, which is now out in paperback. You can purchase it online at cinematicstates.com, and uh, you should really do so because it's it's quite good. Uh, and if you liked listening to Gareth and you're as captivated by his take on movies as I often am, uh, be sure to check out his podcast, *The Film Talk*. They've been on a hiatus for a few months, but I've been informed that they will be back and better than ever in early 2014. So. That Definitely check that out. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place, The Briefing Room, and The Agents of cast. I'm Andrew Johnson. You can find more of my writing at moviemezzanine.com and patheos.com. You can follow me on Twitter at writerandrew, and I hope that you'll do so. And I hope that you'll follow uh, Gareth on Twitter as well. He's at GarethHigginsBE. GarethHigginsBE. So definitely do that and continue the conversation.
0: This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio!
1: Yeah!